Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. And we are halfway through an intense but important series on the seven deadly sins. This is week four. Our sin today is lust, so it's not too late to leave. Uh, But we're getting real here at the Kirk. And I feel like sex is one of those topics like money that most pastors try to avoid at all costs or feel like is really awkward. Uh, I don't know what this says about me, but I appreciate being able to talk about topics like that because they're real and they're relatable. And this morning, as we talk about sin, continue to talk about sin, I want to continue to set the stage for our hearts behind this series. And our hope this morning and throughout this series, really every Sunday, but uh, especially in this series as we talk about sin, is that you will experience conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. And the fundamental difference there with condemnation is that you overly focus on your sin and you either don't want to change or you try to change on your own. You turn inward, you beat yourself up, and you're filled with shame and guilt. That is condemnation. The Bible says, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You've come to the table. You've eaten of his body. You've tasted of his blood. You have received the inheritance in Christ. There is no condemnation, but there is and there ought to be a great deal of conviction. And conviction is when the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you opens your eyes. And as you read God's word, brings that word to life and shows you what your life really looks like. You have an accurate view of yourself and you see yourself in these struggles and you see that you don't always live in a way that is consistent with your identity in Christ and you want to change. But with conviction, you recognize you can't change on your own strength. You can only change by the grace of God. And so that is our desire this morning is that you will experience the grace of God. This is a grace-filled place. But part of how we experience God's grace is through change And how that change comes is through seeing the word and surrendering ourselves to the work of God. And so we're looking at some various texts this morning. We're kind of jumping around uh, in the Bible. And this morning we're looking at a text from Thessalonians on lust, on sexual immorality. So there are a few things that will damage relationships that will deepen your guilt and your shame, that will hinder your prayer life, that will damage your effective witness like sexual sin. Arguably, this is one of Satan's most common and most effective methods for turning hearts away from Christ. I don't have to tell you that we live in a very highly sexualized culture, an over-sexualized culture. Now, the truth is, there's nothing new under the sun. And the cities and the context into which Paul was bringing the gospel and planting churches, they were over-sexualized as well. In fact, in this practical application section of this letter, this is the first topic that Paul chooses to hit strategically, is to avoid sexual immorality. But I will say this, I believe today that while there's nothing new under the sun and the sin of lust has always been around as long as there have been broken human beings, 
I think today we have greater access and opportunity to indulge those sexual sinful desires than ever before in history, unfortunately for us. And so I think we have access in ways that our ancestors could not have imagined. So our pattern in this series has to begin with some kind of basic working definition. What is lust? Again, I could offer a number of definitions, but I want to start with one that's very simple and straightforward. So lust is sexual desires that disregard God and dishonor others. Sexual desires, not evil. Sex, not bad. The body, good, holy, given by God. But sexual desires that disregard God and his standards and dishonor other people. This is when our sexual desires become lust. So sex is a natural, wonderful, important part of life. It's how life goes on. It's important for bringing together marriages, for mutual pleasure in the marriage relationship. Our sexuality is a good gift, but like all good gifts, we have to steward them. And there need to be boundaries, structures, guardrails, or our disordered hearts will take a very good thing and we will ruin it. That's what we do, right? Not just with sex, with with many good gifts. But we need those boundaries, and God has given us guardrails around this gift. And when we attempt to joy the gift outside of these restraints, the gift becomes a burden. The blessing becomes a curse. You see, one of the great myths in our day is that freedom is defined by basically being able to do whatever you want. You want to be free? You want to enjoy your life? You want freedom? Just do whatever you want. Do what feels right. Follow your heart. You be you. Do what is right for you, and then you will be free. The problem is that it's a lie. Because we live in a sinful environment, because our hearts are sinful, we don't choose the good that we ought to choose. And we end up imploding our own lives. And so lust, like all of the deadly sins, the foundation of it is that ultimately it is a heart problem. You're going to notice a pattern here with all of these. And we get another one of those, you've heard it said, but I say. And Jesus is raising the bar and he's revealing to us that we all struggle with this sin. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, it's not just the certain boundaries. It's not just if you break the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the heart transforming work of the spirit reveals that you have lust in your heart. Now, girls, you don't get off on this either because it works both ways, right? It's not just a man that looks at a woman lustfully, but it works both directions. And here's the thing. This is not a, this is not a young person's problem. This is not a, a man's problem. This is a human problem. This is a heart problem. This is something that we all struggle with. Don't think that this is something just that the young people struggle with, although across generations and different stages of life, we may struggle in different ways with different aspects of this, but this is a human problem. And over and over again in the scriptures, we're told to watch out to guard your life, to be on alert, to engage in the spiritual warfare because it will keep coming at you. And I can't tell you, you don't want to hear the stories of people into their 60s and their 70s and on and on shipwrecking their life over sexual sin. We cannot say this is a man's problem. This is a young person's problem. These are all myths. This is a human problem. And if you think you are beyond this sin and this temptation, watch out. 
because our hearts can become corrupted. This is a human heart problem. We have to watch out. This is one of those areas of sin where I believe just giving in a little bit, just entertaining a little bit of sin can lead us into a trap and a snare. So this is the image that I thought of. I don't know if you've ever tried to, uh, to set up one of these old school rat traps, but they are treacherous. <laughs> they will take off a finger. I mean, they are so sensitive. So years ago, I remember setting up, you always have to set up a bunch of them. So I put several on there for dramatic effect, but it's because you have to set up a lot and you put some kind of Something on there that's enticing for the rat. You know, a little peanut butter or cheese or whatever it is. And it doesn't take much. That's why it's hard to set because there's not much pressure there. Just a little bit of touch onto that platform and bam! I mean, no more rat or finger. Just a little bit of that cheese. Just a little nibble. And so it is with sexual sin. Just a little bit can get us. So I want to lay out a few fundamental ideas, kind of some framing thoughts around lust before we get into the specifics of our passage. The first one is that lust is a disordered desire. So that's the language we've been using throughout this series to talk about all of these sins. Lust is an inordinate or excessive desire for sexual pleasure. Again, sex is not a bad thing. Desire for that is not a bad thing, but an inordinate or excessive desire, wanting fulfillment and being willing to fulfill that desire by pursuing it in ways or in relationships that do not honor God and violate his design for human flourishing. This is lust. We could also think of lust as a not just an inordinate desire, but a defective desire of loving too little. So let me tease this out for you. In the sense that lust desires pleasure but not partnership, not relationship, not the covenant partnership that was designed, that it was designed to serve in the first place. Lust takes sex outside of the context of marriage. It takes a created good intended for the nourishment of lifelong relationship and it robs it of its intended purpose and meaning. So to say to a person, I want you to satisfy my sexual desires but I don't want to have a committed relationship with you. This is dishonoring. It's dehumanizing. But here's the problem. We think we, think we can do this. And we will say, you know what? You can just have a fling. You can just hook up with somebody. You can just have just pure physical pleasure. And then we'll forget about all the other complicated stuff, okay? We're just having fun. The problem is that's not the way God designed us. We were created to be integrated people. And sex is a very powerful thing. And so to give yourself physically wholly to another human being can never be just a physical thing. We might live under the illusion that it could be, but it is not. It is a very powerful thing. And it always involves our whole selves because we're integrated beings. And so we lose the power when we say, you know what, this is just about pleasure. It's not about a committed relationship. No, it was designed to feed and to be a part of this committed relationship. So lust is sexual desire minus a commitment to honor the other person. It is dishonoring. Lust is an idolatrous desire. It's an attempt to fulfill my desires in a way that fills the void in my soul. That gap 
that itch, that need for something that will make me happy, that will bring me joy, that will bring me satisfaction. And I place that desire as more important than honoring God and honoring other people. It's another version of love of self. It all goes back to pride. It's an excessive love of self that I deserve this, and so I'm going to fulfill this desire. I don't care what it costs other people. It's an idol. My desires, if only for a moment, become my God. And then lust becomes an enslaving desire. Here's how the cycle works. It starts with a sinful nature. And because of that sinful nature, I sometimes will to do sinful things. It's something that we will to do. We don't accidentally fall into sin. We do it because we have a will, and that will then has distorted desires. When I give in to those desires, that leads to behavior. And then behavior becomes habit. When I do it over and over again, I continually give into it. And eventually, even secular psychologists will admit that those behaviors, as it relates to our sexuality, can become compulsive to where the thing now owns you, the gift that you've been given, is now actually a slave. And you can never fulfill it. Finally, lust is a destructive desire. The consequences of our sexual, sexual immorality are many. There are physical consequences for that. You may or may not have heard about that in sex ed class at school, right? But what we often don't talk about beyond that is the relational aspect, the psychological, the spiritual implications, a distorted view of human dignity, how dehumanizing it is to give in to lust. Compulsive behaviors eat up our time. They cloud our thinking. They leave us distracted. We become enslaved to these desires, which were designed to be a good gift but instead they own us. This is how serious lust is. So I want to walk us through this passage here. There are many passages we could have used to talk about this. But at the beginning of this passage, Paul addresses the church at Thessalonica. They were, again, it was a very sexually saturated city like many in the Greco-Roman world. And he lays the case for a foundation of faithfulness in verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That's the foundation, right? Why do we want to overcome sexual temptation? Why do we want to live holy lives? Because we want to please God. Now, this language is a little confusing because when we think of people-pleasing, that is a negative thing, right? Like I'm trying to keep the people in my life happy so they won't be angry at me or I won't get punished. But this is not what it means to please God. God-pleasing is not the same as people-pleasing. No, we don't please God so that he will love us and so that he will bless us, but we want to please God because he is already committed to love us. He loves us unconditionally and he wants what's best for us, and therefore we want to know what his good and pleasing and perfect will is because that is what is truly best for us. The desire to please God is a relational outflow of a safe and trusting and committed relationship with God. We're not just obeying traditions or rules. We want to glorify God with our lives. This is the foundation of our faithfulness. Now these commands, he writes, he says, look, they're not new. In fact, it seems that the majority of the church has understood them, are in sync with these ethical standards. Instead of bringing a new command here, he exhorts them to continue in these ways. Do them more and more. That's 90% of the Christian life, right? Do them more and more. The things that you already know to do, 
That's, that's 90% of our sermons is reminding you of things you've heard before and reapplying them and encouraging you and exhorting you to continue doing the things you know to do. Most of life is maintenance work, isn't it? It's not very attractive. We like new ideas and new thoughts, but most of life is maintenance. Do them more and more. Commit to know what God says and build your life upon it. Keep on doing them. We must have a determination, a plan to pursue God above all else because if we aren't looking to God and focused on Him, if we aren't looking for His glory, reordering our hearts and our lives to Him, if we aren't looking to God for satisfaction and peace and joy and hope, if we aren't looking to Him, we will look elsewhere. Amen? We'll look somewhere else. And it can be any number of things. We're talking specifically about sexual sin this morning. It's one of many things that we turn to when our hearts are not focused on God and his purposes. And when we look elsewhere to those other things, let me just tell you something. Let me give you, this is not a secret. You're not going to be satisfied. You're not. You're not going to find what you're looking for when you look elsewhere to what only God can give you. Hear that. I have experience with it. You have experience with this. You know it to be true. You'll be disappointed. So what is God's will? God's will is that our sexuality would be sanctified. To know God's will, that we would be set apart, that we would be made holy, that we would be sanctified, set apart for God's purposes and God's kingdom. That's what it means to be sanctified. And friends, that's God's will for you. I don't know God's will for all of your decisions about where you're going to go to college or what your next job's going to be. Those require wisdom. They require the community of believers to discern. There are a lot of things about God's will that at times are mysterious, but there are things that are clear, and right here is one of them. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. You get up in the morning, you wonder what God's will for your life is. There it is. Be sanctified. To be holy. And there's a long list of things that get you moving in that direction to work on the rest of your life. Sometimes, I was talking with somebody after first service, sometimes I think we like to pretend that the Bible is like so different from our life today that, you know, how, what could it possibly speak to us? It's, the Bible's about human beings who haven't really changed all that much, unfortunately, over many thousands of years. There's so much that's clear to be sanctified So the command given here is to avoid sexual immorality. This was a term in the New Testament. It was the most broad term that could be used. There are lots of different terms to talk about different kinds of sexual sins. And sexual immorality, typically when it's translated that way, is the most broad term in general for all sexual sin. Any sexual activity outside the context of a biblical covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. That's basically what sexual immorality is about. And we're called to self-control to be exercised in a way that's holy and honorable, in contrast to those who don't know God, who just do whatever they please and whatever feels right. In contrast, a healthy sexual practice is concerned with the well-being of others. Verse 6, And in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So sexual sin not only disregards God, violates his commands, but it also dishonors other people made in the image and likeness of God. 
to sexually sin against another person, whether an actual human being or someone captured as an image on a screen, is to tell that person not only that we don't care what God says, but we don't value the image of God in them. It is dehumanizing. Sexual sin is not just an isolated, private activity. It has an impact on one's relationship with God, on other people. It is more destructive than we can imagine. It's a sin against God, and it's a sin against or to take advantage of a brother or sister. And God's design is that our sexuality should honor him, and it should honor the humanity of others. Through our actions, we can honor God and his spirit living inside of us, or we can reject God we can dishonor him. And the ethical standards of Christianity are based in the very character of God. God says, be holy because I am holy. Be faithful because I am faithful. And covenantal faithfulness in marriage is designed to reflect a God who is faithful to us. God also promises his Holy Spirit to empower us for this holy living. This is true of our sexuality. It's true of other aspects of who we are and all that we are that is being redeemed by God. Now let me just talk to you for a minute pastorally. Um, Some of you here today have struggled in the past with sexual sin, right? Whether it's premarital sex, sex outside of marriage, whether it's relationships that were unhealthy and ungodly. Maybe it was a relationship that started that didn't end up turning into anything, but you were flirtatious with someone at work, Uh, Maybe it's impure thought life. Maybe it's pornography. There are lots of different ways that are hitting lots of people here this morning. Some of you, that's in your past. Some of you, that's your reality right now, today. You're struggling with sexual sin. And you're sitting there, and I know exactly how you're feeling. Because I've sat in your seat and felt that conviction. And you're feeling pretty uncomfortable but I just want to encourage you. I have some really good news for you. No matter what, no matter how this has manifested in your life, maybe you're in the thick of it. Maybe somebody's sitting out here this morning or, or listening to this message online. You are in the middle of an affair right now. I'm just, I'm just calling things out that are out there because statistically it's true. You think all those people aren't sitting in church. Yeah, they are. You are. No matter whether it's just struggling with impure thoughts or you're in the thick of an affair or whatever it looks like for you right now, I want to tell you that Christ saves and redeems sinners. That's the good news. That's the good news. No matter how long you've been struggling, no matter how deep you are, a deep dive you have taken into this sin or any of the other sins we're going to talk about in this series, Christ redeems and rescues sinners. And he wants to pour out his grace in your life. And he wants you to experience true freedom. Not a fake freedom that thinks that pursuing these other things is going to make you happy. But he wants you to actually experience the freedom of what it looks like to live a holy and sanctified life. And to serve God in the freedom of walking in his ways. He wants you to experience that grace. And I want you to experience that grace. Because... Everybody sitting in this room, we've all got our own mix of sins that we're struggling with, and we have experienced the grace of God. And when you experience the grace of God, there's nothing like it. And so if you're a believer, the, the first thing I want to tell you this morning is that 
Those things don't define you anymore. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it was another text that I could have preached this sermon on, Paul is listing a number of vices, and he says they're sexually immoral people and thieves, and they're greedy, and they're drunkards, and slanderers, and swindlers. It's really bad. And he says these kinds of people who continue in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, he says an important statement, statement, and that is what some of you were. Were. Past tense but you're no longer those people. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are a new person and those things no longer define you. Now here's the tricky part. You are now a child of God and you will still struggle to live like the old person. But that doesn't define you. Right? You are a child of God who struggles and sometimes gives in to sexual temptation. But you are not a sexually immoral person. That doesn't define you anymore. You are a child of God. You are washed. You are redeemed. And so quit living like the person that you used to be. Quit putting yourself in chains that don't belong. When Christ has already given the key, he has released you. You are a new person. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, for those who are not in Christ, he offers you that freedom. He offers you that same grace. That statement can be true of you. That is what some of you were. By placing your faith in Christ through his grace, you can make that change and that shift. That doesn't mean you're going to become a perfect person overnight, but it means there's something new happening in your your life. There's a new power at work. There's a grace. It means those things no longer condemn you. You now can experience that conviction where you can say, okay, that's not who I am. Christ helped me to become a new person. This is a different way of being human, but Christ rescues and redeems sinners. I want to give you a few strategies for dealing with temptation this morning. I'm just scratching the surface. I would love to have conversations with any of you about any of this. I would love for you to go and receive prayer from our team. If this is hitting you this morning, if you're feeling convicted, I hope, and not condemned, I pray that this is a beginning for you. But I want to give you some practical strategies because we all deal with temptation. These are not exclusive to sexual sin, but I think they are particularly helpful as we think about sexual temptation. The first one is remove, to remove the temptation. Right? Jesus makes this really cryptic statement in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and basically what he's saying is that you need to take drastic action in your life to remove temptation, things that would cause you to turn away from God. You need to take action to remove them. Right? It's, it's hyperbole, but it's a serious statement. What does that look like in the battle of sexual temptation? Well, for some of you, it may mean that you don't need to have, you have no business having a smartphone. That's really inconvenient, Pastor. Yep, it is. Been there, done that. Right? Sometimes we have to take serious action in order to remove those temptations from our life. Maybe it's for certain places that you cannot go. Maybe it's a certain uh, relationship or work that uh, your work or maybe some other context is something that you need to walk away from because it's going down the wrong path. I don't know what it looks like for you, but the first strategy we have is to remove the source of temptation. The second strategy is to resist. 
We can't always avoid all of it. Uh, it's there, and so we can resist. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. I think the follow-up there is important. It's not just a resist, 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 do better, try harder. But what do we do? As we resist that sin, we have to turn into Christ. Right? We have to be renewed in his word. We have to fill our lives with good and godly things to pursue. Resist the devil. Turn and draw near to God. The third strategy is run. Sometimes you're in the middle of it, right? And I've sort of put these in order. It's better to remove the temptation, but a... a, legitimate strategy is to run, to go far away, to get away, to distance yourself from those sources of temptation in your life, praying and believing that God will provide that way out. Sometimes people will say, oh, I just couldn't, I couldn't help it. I couldn't avoid it. It's just, it's just too hard today to follow God's standards. It's just impossible. No, it's not. With man, it's impossible. With God, it's not. Is it hard? Yes. Is it harder than ever? I don't know. I've never lived any other time, but I would say probably yes. It's hard to live with purity in this culture, in this time we're living in. But there's nothing new under the sun. You can't blame the time you're living in. God puts you here in his divine providence. The devil can mess with you and he can tempt you, but don't say the devil made me do it. No, the devil tempted you and you did it because you willed and you desired and you wanted that thing and you went for it and you did it. That's why we sin. Can't blame anybody else. We can blame our environment. We can blame the devil. It's all involved, but at the end of the day, you did it. And we have the opportunity to run. Fourthly, we can recruit. We can recruit others to pray for us, to hold us accountable, to be in community. It's the only way we can survive all of these deadly sins coming at us is that we need one another. We need people who can pray for us, who can encourage us, who can hear us and not accept our sin, but who can minister the grace of Jesus to us and say, I still love you, brother, and so does God. Let's keep moving forward in the right direction. How can I help you? We can recruit. And finally, when we find ourselves falling, we can repent. And never grow tired of repenting. And the goal of repenting is refreshment. It's not guilt. It's not shame. It's not about feeling bad for your sin. It's so much deeper than that. To repent. To come to the table. To receive the grace of God. Again and again. Don't get tired of coming back. When you feel like, you know what, the all hope is lost, don't listen to that. That's not the voice of God. All hope is not lost. Can't, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, you can. God can. You can't, but God can. Don't give up. Friends, I, I know this is, this is a serious sermon series and a serious sermon today, but, but this is real. This is, these are things that we're struggling with. And, and I want you to, we want you to, God wants you to experience his overwhelming grace. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to experience the true freedom that comes from walking in his ways. So whoever you are today, however this has landed on you, I'm just praying for you that God would spark something and that you would begin a journey of drawing near to him, of resisting the devil, of resisting the sources of temptation in your life to find true freedom. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Heavenly Father,
We thank you for your word, which brings conviction. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see your word and to find life there. And Father, I pray this morning that you would work in minds, you would work in hearts. God, that you would be softening individuals to be open to the transforming work of your spirit in their life beginning today. God, I pray you give people the courage to reach out, to reach out to you, but to reach out to others. God, I pray that you would produce good fruit in us as you bring about true freedom and true godliness in this important area in our world. God, help us as we seek to try to be different from the environment around us. God, in a way that more and more is becoming a very different way of practicing sexual standards and ethics. God, would you help us to do that more and more and to be faithful to your word and to try to live by these ways, knowing that that ultimately it's not that you're trying to keep something from us, but you're trying to give us a good gift and to redeem this area of our lives that's been so broken by our own sinfulness. So, Father, we love you this morning. We ask for your grace. We ask for your power to be at work in us, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.